This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Hello. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming on out. So we are, uh, we've worked our way through the majority of our uh, lecture um, series for this winter, and uh, we've got two more lectures after this one. Next week, the, uh, this schedule is printed in such tiny print, um, I'm going to try to read it correctly. March 18th, which is next Friday, uh, Sarah Chestnut will be, Sarah Chestnut in the room? There she is. Awesome. We'll be lecturing on, Can We Be at Home in the Shadow of the Fall? Reflecting on Home with the Help of Poets. I don't know if you want to say anything about that or whether uh, we should just leave it at that. That's pretty good. That's pretty good, yeah. Awesome. And then the following and last lecture of our term is uh, by Esther Dalton, who is right here in the front row. Uh, The monster in the closet, facing the question of what to wear. Which I think is the best title of our series, this, uh, this term. All right. Well, uh, when we get started um, on tonight's topic, on being in a story, um, I'm impressed that any of you showed up to such a vague title, Um, but uh, I want to start actually with playing a couple of clips from a film. Hopefully uh, there won't be any technical problems, Um, but it's from a film called Stranger Than Fiction, which some of you might have seen before. Uh, The main character is Harold. And he's played by Will Ferrell. Harold is an IRS employee who, who lives a very, very, very boring life. Um, but he starts to hear a voice in his head. It's not voices, it's just a voice. And it's not telling him to do things or, or anything like that. It's, it's simply narrating to him what he's already doing. So it's telling the story of his life as he's living it. And it's Emma Thompson's voice. So, so it could be much worse than that. Um, he is deeply disturbed by this and goes to talk to a therapist who points out that this is not typical of schizophrenia or any other psychological disorder that she knows of. Uh, he seems to be psychologically healthy, if, if a little boring, uh, and stable, apart from hearing his life being narrated. So after being stumped, she suggests, the therapist suggests, that he should seek out someone who knows about literature. Someone who understands stories and storytelling and who might shed some light on what he's experiencing. 
Harold uh, is particularly disturbed when one day, I don't remember what he's doing, but one day he hears the voice say, little did he know that this seemingly innocuous act would lead to his, lead to his imminent demise. <laughs> Uh, he goes to a local literature professor who's played by Dustin Hoffman and um, who tries to help him after a lot of convincing, tries to help him try to figure out what kind of story he's in. So you're the young gentleman who told me about the narrator. Yes. And this narrator says you're going to die. Uh, yes. Uh, how long has it given you a lip? I don't know. Dramatic irony. Go fuck every time. So, you crazy or what? Well, you want to say that to crazy people? I don't know. Oh, well, how many stairs in the hallway out there? What? You were counting them as we walked, weren't you? No. Of course. <laughs> what bank you work in? Uh, no bank. IRS agent. Married? No. Ever? Engaged to an auditor. She left me for an actuary. Too long? Yes. Any pets? Uh, no. Friends? No. Well, Dave at work. I see. The narrator, exactly what does he sound like? It's a woman. Huh? A woman. Is it a familiar woman? No. Someone you know? No. Did you have enough time to count the uh, tiles in the bathroom? I wasn't counting the tiles. Mm-hmm. Coffee? No, thank you. you sure? Mm-hmm. So, this woman, the voice, told you you were going to die? Well, she didn't tell me. She doesn't know I can hear her. She said it? Yes. And you believed her? Well, she's been right about a few other things. Such as? How I felt about work. You dislike your work? Yes. Well, not the most insightful voice in the world, is it? First thing on the list of what Americans say they hate, work, second, traffic, third, missing socks. See what I'm saying? <laughs> I told you you were going to die, believe me? No. Why? I don't know you. But you don't know this narrator either. Wow. Okay, Mr. Crick, I can't help you. Why? Well, I'm not an expert in that crazy. I'm an expert in literature theory, and i got to tell you, thus far... There doesn't seem to be a single literary thing about it. I don't doubt you hear a voice, but it couldn't possibly be a narrator because frankly there doesn't seem to be much scenario. And beside that, this semester I'm teaching five courses, I'm mentoring two doctoral candidates, and I'm the faculty lifeguard at the pool. <laughs> I just thought you could possibly perhaps you should keep a journal. Write down what she said or something. That's that's all I can suggest. I can barely remember it all. I, I just remember little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous act would lead to his imminent death. What? Little did he know that Did you this... say little did he know? Yes. I've written papers on little did he know. <laughs> I used to teach a class based on little did he know. <laughs> I mean, I once gave an entire seminar on little did he know. Son of a bitch, Harold. <laughs> Little did he know means there's something he doesn't know. That means there's something you don't know. Do you know that? Uh, I want you to come back Friday. Okay. No, in a minute. You could be dead by Friday. Come back tomorrow at 9.45. Ten seconds ago you said you wouldn't help me. 
It's been a very revealing 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. yeah, go and watch the rest of it. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so, okay, one more scene quickly from the movie. Sorry. I'll, uh... Concentrate last night? No. Of course not. I've devised a test. How exciting is that? Of the 23 questions which I think might help uncover more truths about this now, Howard, Harold, Harold, these may seem silly, but your candor is paramount. Okay. So, you know what's a woman's voice? The story involves your death. Tomorrow, it's in English, and I'm assuming the author has a cursory knowledge of the city. Sure. Hey, boom. <laughs> Question one. Has anyone recently left any gifts outside your home? Anything? Gum? Money? A large wooden horse? I'm sorry? Just answer the question. No. Do you find yourself inclined to solve murder mysteries in large, luxurious homes to which you... Let me finish. To which you may or may not have been invited. No. No, no, no. On a scale of one to ten, what would you consider the likelihood you might be assassinated? Assassinated? One being very unlikely, ten being expecting it around every corner. I have no idea. I have a phrase. Are you the king of anything? Like what? Anything. King of the lanes at the local bowling alley. King of the lanes? King of the lanes. King of the trolls. Uh, uh, king of the trolls? Yes. A uh, 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 clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. And no. Uh, no. It's ridiculous. Agreed. But let's start with ridiculous and move backwards. Now, was any part of you one time part of something else? Like, do I have someone else's arms? You were made of stone, wood, lie, very corpse parts, or birth made holy by rabbinical arms. No, look, look. Uh, I'm sorry, but what do these questions have to do with anything? Nothing. The only way to find out what story you're in is to determine what stories you're not in. Odd as it may seem, I've just ruled out half of Greek literature, seven fairy tales, ten Chinese fables, and determined conclusively that you are not King Hamlet, Scout Finch, Miss Marple, Frankenstein's monster, or Golem. Hmm? Are you relieved to know you're not a Golem? Yes, I am relieved to know that I'm not a golem. Good. <laughs> okay. That's enough entertainment. Um, anyway. Could watch, we could just watch the movie, but... Um, <laughs> Harold discovers gradually that his narrator is an actual living acclaimed novelist from his city uh, and his life is actually her latest novel that she has been struggling to complete. Uh, Her editors are on her case. She can't figure out how to resolve it. And most disturbingly, uh, he discovers that for literary reasons that he doesn't understand, for the novel to be a true masterpiece, etc., he has to die just wouldn't be a good novel if he doesn't die. Um, in the process of wrestling with the questions, uh, what kind of story is my life, Harold actually changes. He starts actually to pursue things that he's interested in. 
he stops being such a uh, a boring um, just go to work, come home, go to bed type of person. He falls in love. He learns to play the guitar. In a sense, he starts to live for the first time. Uh, so, anyway, Stranger Than Fiction, great movie. Um, it's it's surreal, bizarre, uh, hilarious at times, but also uh, profound in its own way. Because what kind of story am I in? Is is uh, a question that most people are asking in one way or another. Um, not just people who hear voices in their heads, uh, but actually normal people <laughs> ask ask that question in one way or another. Sometimes without realizing it. Um, <clears throat> I want to give you just a little bit of a sense of where I'm headed tonight. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about stories in general, just very inadequately. Um, let's talk about humans and storytelling. And then move on to this notion of our lives being a story. What does it mean if your life is a story? And then what does it look like for your life to be part of a bigger story? Say a chapter in a longer story. And then lastly, what does connecting our story to God's story mean? So as you can tell, it's kind of a, uh, the structure of the talk kind of expands from, from something small to something very big. <clears throat> so from the earliest age, uh, in my experience anyway, it seems that human beings want to hear stories in car rides even very short car rides, my kids would often say, when they're, particularly when they were little, can you tell us a story? Often what they'd want to hear was a story about me when I was a kid or about their grandparents, something crazy their grandparents did when they were little. And I wanted to say yes to this whenever possible because you know it's wonderful that kids want to engage in this way. But it's very, very challenging to come up with interesting stories, one after another, after another, after another, to to satisfy what seems like an insatiable desire, appetite for stories. Also, I think from a very early age, a lot of children like to tell stories in their own way, even if they are incomprehensible stories to adults, even if uh, a child's grasp on language is tenuous, um, you can tell when a story is being told, instead of unmistakable. (laughs) And uh, I have a, a nephew who's older now, but when he was younger, uh, would demand that all the adults in his life listen to very long, extended, and fairly nonsensical stories, uh, usually during car rides again. But the stories he told, they seemed to be composed spontaneously, clearly had meaning to him. It meant something to him, uh, whether it was the, the, the actual story itself or whether it was... Um, learning how to construct something that people would listen to. I don't know. But he was clearly experimenting with what it means to tell a tale, and he needed listeners. And this was, this was sort of a, uh, a routine thing that would happen every time the family would go on a drive. Some kids like to invent stories in their heads that never actually see the light of day. We have a daughter who, who uh, we, we asked her why she was taking so long to get down to the car. We had to get out of the house, and she, was, she said, oh, I'm watching a movie in my head. Um, she she has a very rich internal life and she was entertaining herself by basically replaying some movie that she had seen uh, and I, I think she I think she does this uh, you, you never tell you know what's going on in someone's head but it, se- it seems to be uh, there's stories going on um, 
you know, whatever you look up definitions of what the word story means, it's very dry and boring sounding, but, but I'll just read you a couple. Um, a story is an account of imaginary or real people at events told for entertainment. That's one definition. I don't like it very much. Um, a narrative, either true or fictitious, in prose or verse, designed to interest, amuse, or instruct the hearer or reader. But the word story can also refer to one aspect of a work of literature. For instance, a novel could have a storyline, but that's not the whole of, of what the novel is. Uh, you could say that you know the characterization of this novel was good, but the story was weak. So the story can be an aspect of something bigger. Uh, definitions of what makes a good story vary widely from person to person, from culture to culture, and probably throughout time as well. There's, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff that I'm not even going to address at all. It's way... Uh, way more involved um, than I can really engage with. But in any case, through the use of our imaginations, we're able to put words together and construct an account of a series of events, often completely foreign to our experience. It doesn't have to be about us, but it could be. And it has meaning. So the events are not random and unrelated, but somehow coherent and uh, for anyone who has kids, you probably notice as they get older, their stories get more coherent. They start to make more sense. They start to hang together uh, as kids get the hang of what it is to tell a story properly. <clears throat> but the point is they're made to be told. The ideas and events are selected and sifted and edited and grouped in such a way as to be effectively communicated to someone else. Uh, a well-told story really can interest, amuse, and instruct other people. Uh, but why do people tell stories? Uh, there's uh, many, many different and compelling explanations from many different disciplines uh, for why humans have this impulse to tell stories. And I'll just mention a couple, uh, but please please know that I'm not trying to be exhaustive here at all. Um, Jaron Bars in his book Echoes of Eden, it's, just, it's, a, it's a book on, on the arts and Christianity, um, makes the argument that the human impulse to tell stories is an act of imitation. He's, talk, he's talking about the arts in general, but, but uh, at this point, stories as well. He uses uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's term, sub-creator. Bars makes the point that human beings cannot create in the sense that God creates, which is from nothing and without influence, without precedent. That kind of creation is only something God can do. But human beings truly make things. Uh, paintings, music, sculpture, stories. But in a way that's derived from God's making. God who is the creator of all things. For Tolkien, the term sub-creator, I think he coined this, uh, or sub-creation, means... Uh, conceiving of imaginary worlds that have their own internal coherence. He, as a fantasy writer and as someone who is very interested in this kind of fiction, uh, this was the ultimate example of sub-creation. To create a world that has its own internal coherence so that any tale told about that world is true from within that perspective, from within the, the created world. And this is part of the spell that a good, that a good story is supposed to cast on its listeners. Um, in his view, if, if, a, if a reader has to suspend disbelief that the, the story isn't just being told properly, the story isn't being told well enough, <laughs> it's actually, it should just read as true as you come to it, even though it may be a fantasy. Anyway, uh, as God's image bearers, um, 
we subcreate, human beings subcreate, because he's the original creator. So a very, um, a very cumbersome way to say it is that we make things because we were made to be like the maker. We make things because we were made to be like the maker. But obviously in a much smaller and derivative way. We also work with material that's already been invented. If you think of sculptors and musicians and artists and, and uh, so much of the creative arts are... They're not creating out of nothing. They're working with and recombining things that have already been made and organized before we came. So if this is the case, uh, human beings, when they tell stories, they tell them because God is the great storyteller. And in a sense, because we're his image bearers, we can't help imitating him in this respect. We can hardly keep ourselves from creating worlds. Uh, What is God telling? There's a lot of ways to answer this, but he, in a sense, he's telling the story of the whole cosmos. For for those of us who believe in the, the doctrine of providence, the sense that God is actually not just some distant creator that started something long ago, but is actually involved, actually is, is the sustainer of everything that he has made in each moment. Um, the whole unfolding of human history is a story that God is telling. It's a story uh, that God is telling as we speak. To believe in the God of the Bible is to believe that history is a story that God is in the middle of telling. Uh, but more than that, I think uh, in the scriptures, God has told us the very particular true story of his engagement in human history. So his plan of redemption, God's plan to reconcile all things to himself. Uh, the Bible is written by many, many human authors, but is inspired by God throughout. So that taken as a whole, the Bible, which is often referred to as God's revelation of himself, uh, is God's storytelling. Uh, So, in addition to to stories being a form of imitation, I think that's obviously a very particular perspective from standing on some Christian theology. Uh, Many, many people, including anthropologists and people who study these kinds of things, would say that to tell stories is one of the most basic forms of, of cultural transmission. the telling of stories within a culture is a way of passing down the values of a people uh, reinforcing in each generation the sort of tangible pictures of what is good and what is honorable and what is heroic as well as what is evil and what is shameful so uh, the stories a group of people tell can have an identity forming power for that group It binds individuals together, particularly if the story recounts an important shared history, something that that, uh, happened in a shared past. So to a large degree, the the cohesion that comes from shared narratives, uh, it comes from stories that are told and retold and retold, the cohesion within a a group. And there are many many examples of this, but I think... uh, you see this in the Bible itself, uh, this dynamic, and, and you, it's a good thing. It's, it's, God, it's something that God takes advantage of. Um, every Israelite was to be a person who remembered and recounted the events of the Exodus, which was really the founding event of their people as a nation. So the telling and retelling of the events of the Exodus story was a reinforcement of the Jewish people's identity. They were people who had been enslaved, 
but were chosen by the living God to be his people, were freed to worship him and to enter the promised land uh, in order to be a nation of priests to the whole world, in order to bless the entire world. Uh, that was the identity, that was God's intended identity for, for ancient Israel. So the Exodus was crucial to tell and retell because it reminded the people of God who God was and who they were and what the nature of the relationship between them was. Um, and they would remain the same. This, this relationship was established then, but would remain the same into the future, long after the, the, the individual hearers were, were dead. Uh, and one of the ways that God encouraged his people, or actually required his people to actually remember, God knows that we have short memories, um, was the Passover festivals. You, you actually have to live this out every year. <laughs> you have to reenact the events of the Exodus so that the people of God would neither forget their founding story nor their founder. And there's, there's interesting examples of this. I think it's, I, I believe it's, uh, the part of the story where they, they cross the Jordan, the water stops and they cross the Jordan and uh, they're told to erect a, a stone called an Ebenezer stone, which means a, a, a stone of help. Um, but it's, it, it functions as a remembrance. It's, it's, a, it's like a monument to remind the people of what God did at this particular place at this particular time. And really, specifically so that children would ask their parents, what's that stone doing there? And the parents would recount what happened in that place. So Ebenezer stones were, you could see them as storytelling prompts. It's something that's there to jog our memories and to make sure that in our pride and in our distraction, we don't forget the things that God did. <clears throat> and we pass, we pass the story along to our children. The whole, the whole discipline in, throughout the Old Testament of corporate memory was based on this, this assumed tradition of storytelling. It, it has to do with worship, it has to do with, with uh, reading the law of God, but also has to do with telling the story. Tell it to your children, don't forget. Uh, I'm not sure how many times the Old Testament tells the people of God to not forget, but a lot. Almost on every page. Uh, Christians in a similar way are people of the cross, of the resurrection, of the ascension, and of Pentecost. Um, so Christian people look back to these accounts told in the Gospels and in the book of Acts as well, particularly. Uh, we read and tell and retell these stories because they remind us of who we are and who God is. And this is one of the, the, the wonderful functions of the church calendar uh, because it makes you sort of reenact the, the story throughout the year and then do it again, and then do it again. So as not to forget the big story that we're a part of. Uh, much, much more to say here, obviously, but I want to transition into the second part, which is about uh, our lives as a story. We not only love to, to tell stories and to listen to stories, but we, um, like most people, think of their lives as a story. When someone asks you, tell me your story, uh, most of us would not hear this as a bizarre question. Uh, interesting. Why, why isn't that a strange question to hear? Most of us would not say, uh, let me read you the draft of this novel I've been working on. It's not what people mean when they say, tell me your story. Uh, clearly, your story means the story about you, your life. Tell me your story. 
Um, how many of you, I mean, this is something that I don't do too much anymore, but certainly I have memories of this when I was younger, teenager, and in my 20s. Um, you don't have to raise your hand if it's embarrassing, but um, how many of you have ever put, put your earbuds in, walked around the city, or ridden a bus or something like that, and pictured yourself as a character in a movie? And, you know, um, and thought of the music as the soundtrack of that awesome movie. And might have even carefully constructed the playlist uh, to be the soundtrack of the movie that has you as the main character and pictured what an aerial shot of yourself might look like or whatever. Um, I, th- I feel like a lot of people do that. <laughs> uh, it, it, this, is not, this is not just about wanting to be a movie star at all. It's, it's something much more profound going on, actually. Uh, you and I want our lives to be a story. <laughs> Uh, stories are so important to how we think and live that the vast majority of people view their own lives as stories. Uh, this is intriguing. Um, as we know, a story is an intentionally constructed sort of coherent account of events, characters, and maybe a plot line, maybe even themes that are, that are sort of woven throughout the story. Um, it's carefully constructed and arranged in order to be told. But life isn't really like that. Uh, if you recorded a video of your life continuously for a year, and I know this is impossible, but then sat down to view all that footage, uh, you would probably not perceive that raw footage as a story, really. Uh, this is because real life, most of the time, if, if we just let the tape run unedited, is a long string of disconnected, kind of incoherent experiences, some of them boring, uh, life is full of what seems like extraneous nonsense a lot of the time. Not always, thankfully. Um, so much of life is waiting. Uh, so much of life doesn't seem worthy of mention. If I was going to write a story about my life, I'd just, I would, wouldn't bother telling this part. Um, chances are the uncut documentary footage of your life doesn't make a good story. Uh, unless you have some criteria for assigning particular importance to some things and not others, right? You have to have some way of choosing what's important and what's not. <clears throat> so there's a big difference between a series of events documented in chronological order and a story. Clearly, in order to have a life story, there's a lot of editing and sifting and interpreting and arranging of experiences that needs to happen. So a coherent story can only really emerge once the raw material of life is distilled in some way. And this sounds really complicated, but it's actually something that most people do without even thinking. Uh, since the 1980s, there's been an interest in the, the world of psychology about the role that stories play in the human mind. One area of interest uh, for psychologists has become known as narrative psychology. Not everybody's into this, but it's sort of a, not really a branch, but just kind of a whole area of thinking that some psychologists have gotten um, done a lot of work in. Narrative psychology. Uh, within this field, psychotherapists have noticed that the vast majority of people do not view their lives as a series of disconnected, incoherent experiences uh, you know, happening randomly one after another. They actually draw connections between events. Uh, we emphasize certain themes in our lives and perhaps minimize others in order to make a coherent story emerge from the naked facts. Researchers have pointed out that this process of making your life into a story occurs intuitively in most people 
who are in good mental health. Uh, intuitively, as in, you don't have to teach someone to do this. <coughs> something that people seem to just do. And in the cases of people who do not construct a life story in their mind, it's usually a sign that something has gone wrong. Uh, for instance, people who've suffered really severe trauma in their pasts have a much harder time even wanting to construct a narrative of their life and a harder time doing it because to do so would be to showcase some of the most difficult moments in their life. Uh, but the point is what seems to be a very normal process of the human mind has been interrupted in those cases. It's the exception to, to how most people um, how most people's minds function. Uh, there's an article in The Atlantic from a few years back uh, by a woman named Julie Beck. She, she writes that narrative psychology is, quote, a way we internally integrate the raw facts of our lives. The human mind, in, in her words, she says, uh, picks them apart and weaves them back together to make meaning. She goes on, I think, yeah, uh, she says this, just looking at a person's compiled journal entries does not result in a narrative arc. But hearing people talk about their stories often does. So this implies that we work on our stories as we tell them, creating more structure and flow than there was, finding and emphasizing connections that we missed in the experiences themselves. I think this is actually, she talks about journal entries, but I think this is maybe one of the reasons why so many people journal so faithfully, uh, to process and make sense out of the blur that, daily life is and to try to actually make some kind of coherence out of it. What's the common thread that, that weaves its way through today or yesterday? I have no idea unless I sit down and really try to think it through. What are, what are, what are themes that are happening that I haven't noticed, but maybe are there as part of the impulse to journal? Maybe, maybe, uh, yeah, uh, maybe too much for some people, but, (laughs) but, uh, journaling is, is, can be a really helpful way to do that. Um, other findings from the world of narrative psychology um, there's a northwestern professor of psychology named Dan McAdams and he has a lot of interesting insights uh, I'll just mention a couple uh, from this article He said, Dan McAdams says that uh, people develop an episodic way of understanding their stories this means that uh, it's very common to mentally break up different portions of your life into chapters and, and think of it as, as happening in those chapters and project into the future that future chapters will happen. There'll be a, another chapter someday. So the grad school chapter, the after marriage but before kids chapter, the uh, whatever, the when, when I lived in Scranton chapter. So those parts of your life uh, are broken up into episodes similar to how maybe a novel would have chapters that emphasize different things. In his research, he's also noticed that in the people that he calls generative people, this is a sort of a, a fancy word for basically well-adjusted, public-spirited, healthy, good people in his, in his definition. Uh, they tend to include in, in their stories themes of redemption. He's, he's not referring to redemption in a spiritual sense or religious sense there at all. Uh, what he means is that negative and even tragic experiences in their lives tend to be viewed in retrospect as leading to positive outcomes. Or they tend to be people that are that are open to to reading their life in that way, so they're able to see the good that that came out of the hard times, and this factors into how they tell their stories. 
Of course, not everybody has this redemptive angle. Not everybody is a, is a uh, generative person. Uh, the opposite tendency is also very common uh, to view life through a tragic lens and to, to say things like, well, things were going perfectly until. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the equal opposite response. Mm-hmm. Um, McAdams is very clear that many, many factors end up impacting how we view our life stories, including our own emotional state, our own psychology, our, our relationships, uh, the norms of our culture, the social norms of our culture has a huge amount to do with how we think of our stories, think of the American kind of typical pattern of, you know, grow, you know, go to school, grow up, get married, get a job, settle down, have kids. That, that, that's sort of a, a typical um, narrative that's played and played over again and played over again and in sometimes for some people if their life doesn't fit that pattern they're, they're viewed as a failure you know because they their life doesn't fit a culturally assumed narrative right um, <clears throat> however uh, despite all these external influences which which should shape how we think of our stories McAdams insists that people have the capacity to take control of their stories and that's not just it, it, it definitely has to do with making life changes that will impact your future. That's part of it. But it also has to do with reinterpreting your past. That's what he means by, by taking control of your stories. It's not just changing your future. It's, it's reinterpreting the things that have already happened in such a way as to come up with a different story. So stepping in to what other psychologists, uh, one other psychologist calls the sort of the role of an author. Um, Taking, an, taking the role of an author towards your own story. <clears throat> Another interesting uh, article on this topic reads, uh, by understanding how we create these stories and how they have been structured, we can alter our own stories and rewrite our own scripts in ways that improve our lives. So I think particularly in that quote, you can see there's an underlying assumption here of, of sort of an autonomous self. <laughs> I'm the one that decides what the story is. There's a... Uh, yeah, and I think it's a very typical way for, for, for modern people to view it. My, your story is a... Your life is a story of your own making. You're the one that's telling the story. You're the one that gets to decide where it goes. You're the one that interprets things that have already happened. Um, I tried and tried and tried to find this New Yorker cartoon um, and couldn't. I, I, I'm sure it exists somewhere, but I, I googled it in as many ways as I could think. And... But basically, it's this sort of boring-looking, middle-aged uh, guy sitting in his living room, and this his disgruntled wife standing by the door with her suitcase. And she says, uh, I'm leaving you. You're not a part of the story I want to tell about my life. <laughs> and that just kind of nails it That's in a very sort of in the, the jargon of it you know I, I'm, I'm telling a story about my life and this just you just don't fit into that story I have I have a, a some sort of grander some sort of more uh, uplifting exciting tale that I want to tell about my life and uh, you just don't fit into that anymore sorry um, obviously the cartoon is, is poking fun at it but it is it is uh, nonetheless naming something that's real <clears throat> so 
So the question is, what kind of story are you in? And all, and all the subsequent questions. Is it an adventure? Is it a romance? A comedy? A tragedy? A sad but redemptive drama? Think of all the different kinds of stories there are. And, and the question, what role do you play in that story? Are you a fool? Are you an idiot? Are you a hero? Are you a villain? Are you a tragically wronged person? Are you a misunderstood genius? Um, these questions are up to you to decide. This is kind of the, this is sort of the common the common understanding. The real question is, what kind of a story do you want to to have? What kind of a story do you want your life to be? Um, in a way, I can see some of the benefit of this way of thinking, and, and it sounds like I've, I've only read I've read very little in this field at all. But it seems like the um, narrative <coughs> psychology has a lot of interesting and potentially helpful things for people to to think about. Um, Say if you struggle with passivity and your life always seems to be just happening to you, to ask yourself, what kind of story do I want my life to be? It might actually be a productive thing to ask. Um, it may be a way of recovering some agency in your life. Uh, but I, I also have lots of questions. Um, <clears throat> does it matter whether or not what we call our life stories actually correspond to reality? Uh, or is it just important to construct whatever narrative seems to help you in life? In the realm of the autonomous self, is there any such thing as being wrong about your own story? Is it possible to be wrong if it's your story? <laughs> um, or just is it what you, whatever you say is true? Um, I think there may be unhealthy and excessively negative narratives we tell ourselves, but is the question of their truth an appropriate or relevant question, or is that irrelevant? Um, over the years, I've certainly spoken to many people whose understanding of their lives seems to be dominated by self-pity. There's been there's, there's been chapters chapters of my life in which I think self-pity was the dominant the dominant uh, voice, um, but the dominant theme some people draw out of their life experience is that of being wronged which actually gives shape to a particular kind of life story, gives shape to how someone thinks about their whole story. Uh, sometimes to such a degree that good things they've received in life always seem to be contaminated by it in some way. There's, there's always some reason to feel cheated or hard done by. Obviously this leads to, to a lot of unhappiness, uh, but in a, in a twisted way it does provide a sense of meaning and identity, doesn't it? Uh, you're someone who always gets the shaft, <laughs> whatever that is in your life. Um, I've also spoken to many people with very similar or worse life circumstances who are incredibly thankful, joyful people. And the theme they identify as primary in their life is that of, that of being blessed. And their story and their way of talking about their own story takes on that flavor. Um, so the question is, does it matter whether whether someone's perception of their story is true or not, or is their perception just the the truth, by definition of being theirs? Um, as we sift through our life events in order to tell our life story, does it matter what kind of meaning we find? That's a different question. Uh, is there some interpretive criteria beyond myself for identifying what is actually meaningful? How do I decide what's meaningful and what's not? Uh, do I get to decide which things in my life are of primary importance, or do I look somewhere else for guidance as to what is important? 
So these are all these are all these questions that I have uh, relating to this whole area of narrative psychology. I think a lot of the findings are very persuasive uh, in that they highlight the need that people have to find meaning. This is one of the things that this this area of psychology just it's, it's like shining a spotlight on this. Human beings are desperate for their lives to mean something. And so the construction of a coherent life story is a sign of our deepest human need to have our lives mean something. It's simply another way in or another angle on the same conversation about meaning that we often talk about here. Um, so uh, the need for meaning is clear, but but the, the meaning is not necessarily to be discovered outside the self rather it's supposed it's to be constructed from within you know decide what your own meaning is and then figure out a way of of reinterpreting your story that 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 uh, gives you that sense of meaning so um i want to move on to this idea of connecting with a larger story so we're we're kind of uh halfway through now we've talked about stories in general why we're drawn to telling and hearing stories. We've talked about how we seem to have this impulse to view our lives as a story. And now, um, you know, it, it's one thing to be in a story, to view your life as a story, but it's another thing for your story to be in a story. That's what we're talking about now. Mm. For your story to be in a story. I'm going to read at great length a quote from The Two Towers. So, get comfortable. Uh, I owe I owe a um, debt of thanks to one of our professors when uh, when Nikayla and I and, and Sarah Chestnut were all in grad school together. We were newbies, just arrived, and you know, terrified about what this new new part of our life might look like. And one of our our classes, uh, it was sort of a survey of Christian theology and think and thought. It was called. Christian thought and culture. Anyway, it's just a very, very broad, sweeping survey taught by multiple different professors. The opening, the opening lecture of the opening uh, of this class, which was one of, one of our first classes, um, the professor read this passage that I'm reading to you now, and I realized that I'd come to the right place. Um, for those of you who don't know the story of the Lord of the Rings, this is a. Um, Frodo and Sam are these two very small people, hobbits, uh, who have been tasked with this epic task to destroy uh, a ring which belongs to Sauron, who is the sort of the dark lord, the force of evil in the world. Um, this ring is sort of the source of a lot of Sauron's power, and if he gets it again, if he, if he recovers it, um, all is lost. Their job is to find their way into Mordor through the mountains and actually destroy it in the place where it was made, which is this volcano. Um, and they're about to enter into that land, and they are uh, guided by Gollum. Um, and but they never quite trust him, for good reason. And this is this is where the story begins. In a dark crevice between two great piers of rock, they sat down. Frodo and Sam a little way within, and Gollum crouched upon the near the ground near the opening. There the hobbits took what they expected would be their last meal before they went into the nameless land. Maybe the last meal they would ever eat together. Some of the food of Gondor they ate, and the wafers of the waybread of the elves, and they drank a little. But of their water they were sparing, and took only enough to moisten their dry mouths. I wonder when we'll find water again, said Sam. But I suppose 
even over there they drink. Orcs drink, don't they? Yes, they drink, said Frodo. But do not let us speak of that. Such drink is not for us. Then all the more need to fill our bottles, said Sam. But there isn't any water up here. Not a sound or a trickle have I heard. And anyway, Faramir said that we would not, we should not drink any water in Morgul. No water flowing out of Imlad Morgul were his words, said Frodo. We are not in the valley now. And if we came on a spring, it would be flowing into it and not out of it. I wouldn't trust it, said Sam. Not till I was dying of thirst. There's a wicked feeling about this place. He sniffed. And a smell, I fancy. Do you notice it? A queer kind of smell. Stuffy. I don't like it. I don't like anything here at all, said Frodo. Step or stone, breath or bone. Earth, air, and water all seem accursed. But so our path is laid. Yes, that's so, said Sam. And we shouldn't be here at all if we'd known more about it before we started. (laughs) But I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo. Adventures, as I used to call them. I used to think that they were things the wonderful people of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them. Because they were exciting and life was a bit dull. A kind of a sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered. Or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have just been landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back. Only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know. Because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on. And not all to a good end, mind you. At least, not to what folk inside a story and not outside it call a good end. You know, coming home and finding things all right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear. Though they may be the best tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. I wonder, said Frodo, but I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale. Take any one that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of a tale it is, happy ending or sad ending, but the people in it don't know, and you don't want them to. No, sir, of course not. Baron, now, he's referring back to ancient mythology of Middle-earth. Baron, now, he never thought he was going to get that Silmaril from the Iron Crown in Thangora Dream, and yet he did, and that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. But that's a long tale, of course, and it goes on past the happiness and into grief and beyond it. And the Silmaril went on and came to Arendelle. And why, sir, I never thought of that before. We've got, you've got some of the light of it in that star glass that the lady gave you. Why, to think of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? No, they never end as tales, said Frodo, but the people in them come and go when their parts ended. Our part will end later, or sooner. And then we will have some rest and some sleep, said Sam. (laughs) He laughed grimly. And I mean just that, Mr. Frodo. I mean plain ordinary rest and sleep and waking up to a morning's work in the garden. I'm afraid that's all I'm hoping for all the time. (laughs) Anyway, it goes on. Um, It's Again, similar to the film that we were watching, it's it's tempting to just keep on reading. Um, but this is this is literally the the the. If 
few moments before the the very darkest part of their story, the very the most dangerous part of their story, um, when they are tempted to abandon all hope altogether. Um, but there's this this glimmer. Um, Tolkien depicts this revelation, uh, particularly that Sam has, um, when he realized that the ancient tale about the heroes of the past which exists for them as a legend in the songs of elves. This is the only way they know this. Very distant and larger than life sort of story is still unfolding. <laughs> and their own short stories are a continuation of it. They're, they're actually the most recent extension of the grand story about the fate of Middle-earth. Their challenges, their decisions, their victories, their defeats are, are moving the big story forward. So they're actually contributors. Um, Sam has this insight and responds in a, in, in a sense with joy and hope. You see this later in the story a little bit as well. Uh, it's an encouragement to him to realize that the great tales never end. And that his life is connected to something so big and grand and good. Uh, in a sense, it, he has his faith restored in this moment. Um, so, his response is telling, though. For Sam, it's not enough to simply have a story that people tell after he dies. They joke about that later in the conversation. Uh, it's to know that your story is part of something much bigger, something ancient that continues. So, uh, for him, it's to know that in this dark place, uh, it's actually this dark place is actually an event in the big story, and it gives him an awareness of the communion between his ordinary self and these great heroes of the past and the invisible forces that are at work for good now in the story. Without knowing it, Sam is becoming one of the great heroes of that story. But he would he would blush and shuffle his feet if you, if you were to tell him that. Um, but uh, Sam's response is not to have an inflated sense of himself. Rather... Uh, the present dark moment is suddenly flooded with meaning and significance and hope for him. So T- Tolkien has, has struck on something very human that many other people have observed, that uh, we want our existence to be tethered to some bigger reality which defines us and gives us purpose. And we can give meaning to all kinds of lesser things in our lives, uh, but none of those things can give us meaning. So... I give meaning to my hobbies and my friendships and the work that I do and uh, a lot of other things. Uh, But none of these things can tell me what I mean. In a sense, meaning the meaning that I think people long for is a meaning that has to come from above, (laughs) from above and beyond ourselves, from something bigger. Uh, our stories, in order to give us meaning, need to be part of a, a longer, older story. That's the point I'm trying to make. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And I think this is one of the things that that means. Uh, this desire to to have the meaning that can only come from, from connecting to eternity, from connecting to a much, much bigger story than our own. So, I'm, I'm building towards these reflect, the reflection on God's story here, but there are obviously lots of, of less eternal, medium-sized stories that we attach ourselves to in, in search for meaning, right? Um, why stories about one's family are really important. Stories about our hometowns or our home countries 
or our alma maters. Uh, these stories are meaningful to people because they give us a sense we're connected to something bigger um, than ourselves. We're not standing alone. Our stories aren't just sort of a disconnected thread uh, that's hanging loose when we die. <clears throat> yeah, to, to be told that we were born for no particular reason and that our decisions in life have no particular significance beyond ourselves and that our choices and experiences and efforts are essentially disconnected from any larger framework, that, that's sort of a practical definition of meaninglessness. Um, this is what it looks like for a lot of people, and this is why so many people try to, to live distracted lives, so as not to look that meaninglessness in the face. <clears throat> but um, if our own story can be shown to contribute in some way to a larger reality, then perhaps that's the purpose we're looking for. So I can sort of experience a sort of relief from the existential pain that my story is just disconnected. <clears throat> but what uh, what benefits are there to being connected to larger stories? I think uh, it has implications for our past, our present, and our future. I think... Um, to, to connect to a larger story means that previous forces and events and people uh, have impacted us. In a sense, we are the product of things that have come before. Um, the larger story also suggests a telos, a direction that the story is going in, a future or a goal. And because being connected to a larger story does that, it also impacts our present. There's implications for how I should live now uh, if, I, if my life is really part of this bigger story. Um, we actually have some agency, however small, and it matters what we do. Um, <clears throat> so, everything up till now, I think, is we, we've been really been reflecting on the, the idea of story as a very, very powerful meaning maker for human beings. But it seems to me that there is the potential for this desire to be in a very large story. There's a potential for it to be at odds with the notions we were talking about before of autonomy in our own stories. You have this idea that your own story is just a story you're, you're composing. It's, it's something that you're inventing. You are the autonomous author. And yet this longing to be part of a bigger story, those two, those two understandings do not necessarily complement each other at all. They may be in, in, in radical conflict with each other. Um, if I assume I am autonomous... Uh, I'm the one that gets to interpret all the events in my life to suit my definition of meaning and purpose. How can my story be part of a larger one? The very notion of a larger story seems to suggest that I am not completely my own. I belong to something bigger that was around before I existed. So the assumption behind the contemporary notion of a life story is that while many factors influence your story and, and how you tell it, you are still the one who is composing it. You are the author. Um, if things are not going the way you want them to go, change the narrative. Reinvent yourself. Reinterpret your past. Uh, you can downplay events and themes you don't like and showcase the ones you do like. Um, all, all with a very pragmatic goal of being happy, feeling happy about yourself. Um, so we want to be the author that gives the meaning, but we also want all the meaning and purpose that can only come from being a character 
who's conceived by an author. <laughs> if you think of being a character in a story, uh, they have meaning in that story insofar as an author has given them meaning. Um, they play a role in that story because they've been written to play a role in that story. And that's, that's what the purpose of that character plays in, in the course of a narrative. Well, that's the sort of meaning that I think people want, um, that can only come from an author that is not ourselves, and yet we want to be the author. So it's sort of a, um, a bind we find ourselves in. <laughs> Um, and really, the way forward, I think, is just to reflect on the fact that it, it really matters which larger story we attach ourselves to. It's not enough to just attach yourself to any any old larger story, uh, because in one way or another, our own stories will have to submit or bend to the larger one that we find ourselves in. Um, just as we want our own stories to be internally coherent, our stories have to be coherent with the larger story of which they are a part. And this is never more the case uh, than when someone becomes a Christian, I think. This is what it is to sort of be, uh, to use the old-fashioned word, to be converted. <laughs> it's free. It's to, to, in, to one degree or another to submit your understanding of your story to a bigger story, to a different story. Uh, and there may be lots of coherence or there may be lots of contradictions there to... To, uh, to work through. <clears throat> so, what does it mean to connect with God's story? In Romans 11, Paul is addressing Gentile converts to Christianity. Um and the metaphor Paul uses is that of a wild branch being grafted onto the trunk of a cultivated olive tree. So you have a what's called in, in a horticulture, he calls the rootstock. Basically, it's the stump that's connected to roots, uh, the trunk of a, of a tree. That's the rootstock. And then you have the scion. I think it's the same spelling as the car, scion, which is like the branch that gets grafted onto the rootstock. That's Paul's metaphor. Um <laughs> Grafting uh, is a process that requires a master gardener. It's not easy to do. Um, it's done in order to increase the fruitfulness of the rootstock. You may have a branch that bears very good fruit, but the rootstock is, uh, doesn't, so you, most of the apple trees that you see are grafts. Um, and <clears throat> the success of a graft depends on the new branch immediately starting to absorb moisture and nutrients from the root. You have to line the bark up perfectly, um, which will lead to eventually lead to the healing and the fusion of these two things into one plant. So you, you you won't even see the scar anymore if you do a good job. If the graft fails, the branch will wither up and die very quickly, <laughs> particularly if you're in the ancient Near East, uh, because it, it has no root and it's failed to connect to the new root. So it doesn't take long for for a severed branch to dry up and die. Um, so that's the image, sort of a beautiful, evocative image that Paul is using there to describe any non-Jewish person who's become a Christian. <laughs> uh, it's to become connected to and nourished by the living God who has always been, uh, as well as his ancient story of redemption. That's, the, that's what you're being grafted into. It wasn't your story. It was the story of the Jewish people. But if you're a Gentile who's become a Christian, you're like a branch that's been grafted, grafted in. It's a wonderful image, I think. Um, 
It means that your previously untethered story is now a part of God's story, which which is the grandest narrative possible. Uh, when taken as a whole, you think of what God's story is. It, it begins with the creation of all things, including human beings. It includes the fall of human beings, the rebellion of human beings. It includes the redemption of all things through Christ and the future fulfillment of God's promises. So these are scriptural categories which give shape and structure and meaning to what would otherwise be the jumbled, incomprehensible mess, which is human history. <laughs> so in a sense, that scripture helps us to, to think about, about, about human history in a new way. Um, because God is the one telling the story, to allow our story to become part of his is to surrender notions of authorship to him. Uh, to allow him to tell our story back to us. To allow him to tell our story back to us. So he is the one that has a true grip on our life story. He is the one who sees it with the clarity that we often lack. Uh, he is aware of our lives in every detail. He's also aware of his own action in our story that we are often unaware of. Um, so he has the authority to actually interpret our stories. So much so that uh, we see our lives truthfully when we simply agree with his interpretation of our lives. That's how we see our lives truthfully, is to take his word for it. Um, I'm going to... Because no Libri lecture is complete without a Lewis reference to C.S. Lewis. Um, I'm going to read a wonderful example of this. Lewis, C.S. Lewis understood this very well and, and sort of worked this idea into his fiction in various places. But this idea of uh, you actually don't really know your life story very well. You need to be told it <laughs> by the one who does. Anyway, this is a great example. Um, so uh, Shasta is this boy who's an orphan, has been brought up in uh, unpleasant circumstances. He has been drawn up into this, this rescue story where he has to prevent an invasion or has to warn people from this country that they're about to be invaded and, and destroyed. And he has completed his mission, but now he's lost in the mountains at night on a horse. He doesn't know how to ride a horse. He never had a chance to ride a horse except this horse that can talk and knows what it's doing. He doesn't have to... Anyways, long story. <laughs> Read the story. It's called The Horse and His Boy. Um, and this is him uh, alone at night in the mountains. Not sure where he is. After all, said Shasta, this road is bound to get somewhere. But that all depends on what you mean by somewhere. The road kept on getting to somewhere in the sense that it got to more and more trees, all dark and dripping, and to colder and colder air. And strange, icy winds kept blowing the mist past him through there, though they never blew it away. If he had been used to mountain, the mountain country, he would have realized that this meant he was now very near the top, perhaps right at the top of the pass. But Shasta knew nothing about mountains. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Those Narnian lords and ladies got away safely from Tashban. I was left behind. Aravis and Bree, those were his uh, traveling companions, and Huynh are all as snug as anything with that old hermit. Of course, I was the one who was sent on. King Loon 
and his people must have gotten safely into the castle and shut the gates long before Rabadash arrived. But I got left out. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale. And Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror. But now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything on a breakaway and a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop. So he went on at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last he could bear it no longer. Who are you? He said, scarcely above a a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you... are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice. But I'm not like creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. And then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said, almost in a scream, You're not... You're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please, do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother. And had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Aravis and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. (laughs) I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions? said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there was at least two the first night. And there was only one. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. 
I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile that they should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember, who pushed the boat in in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. What for? Child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Anyway. So it goes it goes on. Um, but this is this is sort of a uh, Lewis engaging with that idea that actually we we come closer to the truth if we listen to God's account of our stories than to our own, right? <laughs> There's so much we don't know, even about our own lives. Um <clears throat> So, I think there are, there are both benefits and blessings and challenges and difficulties when we attach our story to God's big story. I'll just reflect for, for a little while on, on what some of those things are. Um, we receive the grace of salvation itself. Um, which is to become beneficiaries of beneficiaries <laughs> of a promise made thousands of years ago, uh, and that will one day be entirely fulfilled. So uh, Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, refers to all Christians as heirs of the promise given to Abraham. And this is just a different way of talking about his metaphor of the, of the grafting of a branch. Right? He's, he's finding many, many different ways of Paul's task is to try to basically. Uh, one of his many tasks is to try to get Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to not kill each other in church. Um, and so he's finding ways of trying to explain what God is doing here, <laughs> making one people out of out of people who despised each other. Um, anyway, this is another way of him referring to to salvation that has come to to non-Jewish people. <clears throat> This is Galatians 3. It's, it's skipping a big chunk in the middle, but I'm just, I sort of bookended it with these two, these two texts. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Then down to verse 26. So in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So this is this is part of a much longer argument that Paul is making. He's, he's making it vehemently that salvation is by grace, a gift from God through faith, as opposed to salvation through obedience to the law. And his way of making the case is referring back to the promise made to the father of the Jewish faith, Abraham. Uh, the promise was that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that the entire world will be blessed through his seed. 
which Paul is identifying as referring to Jesus Christ. So Abraham is said to have believed this outlandish promise, and God took that belief or that trust that Abraham showed and counted it as righteousness for Abraham. The fact that Abraham trusted what God said was true, God treated that like righteousness. So in other words, Abraham, at the very moment that the Jewish faith was being established, receives God's promises through faith and not through any special law observance. And Paul is saying the same is true for anyone who puts their faith in God now. Still about putting your faith in God's gift of salvation and not about observing the law. The giving of the law was, in Paul's understanding, sort of an interlude in God's redemptive plan designed to basically keep the nation of Israel from going off the rails. It was like a, like a, a, a babysitter, like a, a guardian trying to keep, um, keep, keep the nation, uh, as close to God as possible. But salvation through faith in Christ now is totally in line with how God has always interacted with people going all the way back to Abraham. It's grace. Always has been grace. Uh, counting faith as righteousness. So Christians are counted among Abraham's descendants who outnumber the stars. This is, a, this is an aspect of just what it means as we reflect on our small stories becoming part of God's big story. Uh, that ancient story has suddenly become our own the moment we put our faith in Christ. Um, the uh, Old Testament scholar Sandy Richter, who, who um, has done a lot of very helpful lectures and written several wonderful books, she often says in her lectures that Christians who study the ancient Jewish covenants learn about them and their context. They're discovering their story, even though it's removed by you know, thousands of years and uh, removed by, by culture, by geography, by time. Um, Abraham, the ancestor of Jesus, through whom the whole world is blessed, is actually our spiritual forefather as well. Um, <clears throat> this kind of attachment to a larger story happens within the Old Testament too. Um, so I'll just mention it briefly, but if you think of, of the role of Moses, what, what Moses' task was, after he was uh, told by God to return to, to Egypt and free his people, um, one of his tasks is to confront Pharaoh, obviously, but one of his other tasks is to basically reintroduce Yahweh to the people of Israel who have been in slavery for 400 years. It's not exactly clear how much they know and remember about who Yahweh was. It's not exactly clear how much they remember about their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, but that's one of the ways God introduces himself and tells no, um, uh, Moses to introduce him. Uh, introduce me as I am, but also the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how God identifies himself, which is really, it is encouraging the, the elders of the people of Israel who are, who are enslaved. Think of yourselves as being connected to this story that started probably 500 years earlier, maybe 600 years earlier, um, to a man that you've never met in a land that you've never been to. Uh, that's your story, and I remember that story, and I am faithful to the promise I made to him 600 years ago. Um, <clears throat> and I'm going to rescue you from slavery, and that is me fulfilling my promises to your distant, distant, distant forefathers. 
In other words, when Moses returns to the enslaved elders of Israel, his task is to remind them that they belong to a much bigger story, uh, which extends into the distant future and uh, in which their plight as slaves in Egypt is a chapter. So it's a chapter of my much bigger story, and I'm introducing you to it. And the same, of course, can be said for the stories in the New Testament for Christian people looking back as we connect with the person of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, uh, as we sort of enter into these stories with our imaginations and walk alongside his disciples, we're, we're learning our story if we belong to him. There's a, a wonderful old uh, spiritual, uh, no one knows exactly when it was composed, but uh, it's called, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Um, and what, a, what an interesting question. <laughs> uh, the answer, I think, is in a way, yes, if you belong to Jesus Christ. If, if Jesus, if you've given your life to him uh, and you've accepted his work for you uh, on your behalf, that he died for your sin, that he rose again, um, there's a way in which you were there. Your sins are accounted for there. Um, and it's our story, even though it happened long, long ago. Uh, another wonderful benefit of being grafted into the bigger story, I think, is that we step into the stream of the church and the saints. Um, so we get the, the cumulative wisdom and experience of the saints of the church going back um, to the beginning. It, it's worth mentioning that, that not all of the, the things that the saints of the church have done and said are good. And so it's a mixed bag, but there is there is also much much wisdom to be gained through learning our church history and and not just learning our church history, but thinking of it as our story. Um, yeah, we're joining we're joining in 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 a very, very you know I think it's easy, particularly maybe for American evangelical people, to think of the Christian faith as being about me and my Bible and God, and it's just like this very very uh, individualistic vertical silo of a relationship um, doesn't necessarily have much to do with the people next to me in the pew or, or with people throughout history or with people throughout the world now geographically. Um, it's not the picture of the church that, that, that uh, is given to us and it needs to be expanded very often. Um, but yeah, we find, I think when we do that, we start to learn a little bit more about our church history. We find we have many fathers and mothers in the faith. Uh, people whose faith we can emulate. For me, I'll just give a couple of examples. Uh, for me, two of my <laughs> two of my great heroes. One of them is Saint Athanasius. I know just a tiny little bit about him, uh, but he he was a bishop in the fourth century, um, North Africa, I think in Alexandria, and he uh, lived most of his life, even though he was a bishop, um, in exile and in hiding. Um, because he was so convinced that Jesus was fully God. Basically, it's the doctrine of the Incarnation, that, that God took on flesh in Jesus Christ. And uh, at that particular point in the church, that was a controversy, because there were another whole wing of the church that was denying that. And, uh, yeah, so he was, he, was, he was... Thankfully, he was friends with lots of the desert fathers that lived out in the caves in the deserts of Egypt. And he basically spent a significant portion of, a portion of his life on the run, because of his commitment to this doctrine of the incarnation, that if you take, if you lose this belief that 
God became fully a man and was yet fully God still, you just lose the whole thing. You might as well chuck it out. Um, and he believed that and was so convicted of that that he, he fought for it uh, at great cost. He was one of the people who was um, responsible for the wording of the Nicene Creed that many churches recite today. Um, yeah, so I think he's helped me to connect with the importance of the ancient creeds of the church. There's, these are just boring, sort of uh, almost legal-sounding texts that, that people read in churches. It's, it's actually, uh, you know, the story about a, about a real controversy. <laughs> and, uh, and actually the creeds are trying to protect a deep mystery that is crucial to the Christian faith. Um, also learning a little bit about his life has reminded me that uh, some of the most crucial doctrines of the Christian faith uh, were pretty contested and fought for by a lot of people. It's not, it's not a small thing that we believe in the divinity of Jesus today. Um, lots of people actually have, have really um, lived very difficult lives specifically because of their commitment to that. Another, this is, this is gonna to sound totally random, but I'm trying to give you a sense of the, of the breadth of the, of the Church of God and the way in which we can view it as a resource when, when we're, we're looking for spiritual mothers and fathers. Uh, one of my other heroes is Fannie Lou Hamer. She is an African American woman, uh, now, now gone, but, uh, was a civil rights worker in Mississippi in the 1960s. Um, uh, more so than almost anybody, uh, she uh, was very, very good at motivating people to to walk in these marches in which they were going to be very likely um, abused. And um, she was a very committed follower of Jesus. And I think she has helped me to, to see that no matter how badly people are treated, uh, revenge and hatred are not inevitable. It's not inevitable to respond with revenge and hatred. Um, through the power of Christ, we can love enemies and leave vengeance to God. And her life is an incredible example of that. Um, she both got people fired up to fight for civil rights, but also ready to get abused and not retaliate. <laughs> and because of her ability to love her enemies. And uh, she, she, in multiple interviews, she's very articulate about about why she was doing what she was doing, and that um, you can't actually see God, you can't hope to see God and hate your enemies. Um, so those are just two examples of just connecting with very, very different aspects of church history, but in which, you know, when we connect to a bigger story, this is what we get: we get mothers and fathers <laughs> in the faith. <clears throat> Who actually are our brothers and sisters, amazingly? Um, I'll never be able to quote Tish Harrison Warren as much as Joshua does, but um, I'm going to quote her a bit. Uh, In her recent book, A Prayer in the Night, um, I think she reminded many of us that there's an incredibly rich resource in the prayers of the church. they're a resource to us when we lack the faith or the stamina or the courage or, uh, to pray in our own words. And so this is this is what I mean by stepping into this current of, of the Christian church. Prayer is written by people going back many hundreds of years, but uh, this book is particularly about the Compline prayer, which is the prayer at the end of the day. 
Um, and this is a very excellent, excellent book. She's, she's talking about the, um, the lament psalms, and he said, she says this about the lament psalms. They never say, chin up, or it's not so bad. Nor do they tell us why we suffer. Instead, they fix our vision on God's love for us and teach us to locate our own pain and longing in God's eternal drama. So the, the Bible does not offer trite, easy answers to our suffering, why we suffer, or it doesn't try to tell us that it's all an illusion and it's not so bad after all. Uh, but it does encourage us to place our story in the big story, which is one both of God's love but also of God's um, making of everything right at the end. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that comes along with, with joining in with the big story is that there are also challenges. And uh, if our story is part of the big story, then our concern has to shift away from our own ambitions and our own visions for our life and towards the concerns of the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of work to be done and a huge diversity of different kinds of work to be done in the kingdom of God. Um, Paul, in, in um, I think it's for, yeah, 1 Corinthians, talks about our, our work not being in vain after a long description of the power of the resurrection. And this is a comfort, um, but it also means that our work in this life really, really matters, maybe more than we want it to matter. <laughs> um, not because it improves the narrative that we're telling about our own lives, uh, but because our work is participating in something that will last forever uh, if we're offering it to Christ. So there's there's challenges and comforts uh, that come with the big story. Um, <clears throat> I want to conclude uh, just by addressing one possible misgiving. I don't know if it, it was a misgiving that anybody actually had in listening to this, but... Um, if we're to think of our stories as tiny little side plots in an enormous epic tale, doesn't that make our lives, with all the challenges and stresses uh, that we experience, so small as to be totally insignificant? <laughs> um, to be connected to a story that big that includes the creation of the world and fall and redemption and church history and the restoration of all things. I mean, unless you're a major player of some kind, like the Apostle Paul or Martin Luther or, or, uh, or Trish Harrison Warren, uh, aren't your, isn't your story just sort of lost in, in an ocean? Um, how in the world do we, um, are we to believe that we're significant in any way? Um, I think this is, uh, I think we find an answer to it when we reflect on, on the character of God and the nature of God himself. So God is both personal, able to relate to us as people, uh, able to have relationship with us, but also infinite, um, beyond and above the universe that he's made. And when we think of God as infinite, this can be very, very, it's a very abstract concept. It's hard to connect with it. It's hard to relate to it. It makes God seem very distant and removed. Like a, like a mathematical concept. None of us can really conceive of infinity. I can't, anyway. Um, so for God to be infinite makes him seem unrelatable to us in some ways. But actually, uh, as I was thinking about this small story and big story, 
it occurred to me that it's, it's, his infinity, it's, infin, it's his infinity that allows for his intimacy with each of us. Uh, it's the fact that he is completely unlimited and boundless in who he is that enables him to treat each of our stories as having equal significance and weight. Each of our lives, uh, which seem sometimes pretty mundane and backwater kinds of lives, are equally known and held by God. So he's fully present to each of us in our stories, fully aware, fully attentive, fully engaged. And a lesser, more relatable God could never do that. (laughs) A God that's more like me or you. The fact that he's infinite allows him to actually have a personal relationship with millions and millions and millions Mm -hmm. of people that's real. It's not just lip service. Mm -hmm. So there'll always be people who will contribute to God's kingdom in huge and noticeable ways, the the big center stage figures in the world. Uh, But there's no way in which this means their story is more significant to God. Uh, Years ago, Francis Schaeffer, who, who, with his wife, founded Labrie, preached a sermon called No Little People, No Little Places. And I think that this we could, we could add no little stories. <laughs> mm. uh, because as we connect with the big story, we're connecting with the Lord who actually holds every story, actually knows each of us intimately. So uh, with that, I'm going to let Tish Harrison Warren just have the last word, because I think that's just a, that's generally a good policy. Um, but this is... Uh, something that I found very, very helpful near the end of one of her chapters on, on weeping in the night. Um, and not that one, this one. Christians believe that a place of eternal joy not only exists, but is more real than the diminished place of sorrow and pain we now know. The image of God wiping away our tears could, of course, be a metaphor, a statement that all things will at last be well, But what if it's not strictly poetic language? What if in the face of our maker we get one last chance to honor all the losses this life has brought? What if we can stand before God someday and hear our life stories told for the first time accurately and in their entirety with all the twists and turns and meaning we couldn't follow when we lived through them? What if the story includes all the darkness of suffering all the wounds we've received and given to others, all the horror of capital D, death, and we get to weep one last time with God himself. Um, She's saying, what if? But I think that this is the case. (laughs) Um, That's where I'm going to end. And then uh, for those of you who are new to Labrie Lectures, you're welcome to stay and ask questions or raise issues you want to talk about. if you need to go, that's also totally fine. You don't need to, um, don't need to force yourself to stay. Any thoughts? Yeah, Blair. You know, if you think about trying to interpret our own story and wanting to be the master of our story, and how we can look back and we interpret things and put value on things. And if we do that, we do have control, but it, it is, it's lonely mm-hmm. and it's isolated. Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me with the woman, the civil rights leader, I forget what her name was. Fannie Lou Hamer. Yeah. 
and not hating her enemies was that when we submit our pride and trust God to tell us our story, it also does tell us to a degree, in large part, other people's stories as well. So we can look at someone who might be abusing us and understand why they're abusing us and why they need a savior too. And and it gives us insight into into the not just the bigger story, but yeah. even the story of other people's lives. Not specifically like Aslan. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but in a general sense, that helps us to to see and understand mm. what's going on and why people are the way that they are and why mm-hmm. we need to be Christ-like to them, even though our fallen nature would say otherwise. Sort of the call to to view other people as God sees them. Yeah, you know, which is. Hugely difficult. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Peter. Uh, you, you referred to that passage from Ecclesiastes, and uh, actually was reading there this morning. Hmm. Uh, the slightly larger context is uh, he has put, he has made everything beautiful mm-hmm. in its own time. Also, he has put eternity mm-hmm. in man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot know what God has done mm-hmm. from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. How how does that sort of? I mean, it seems as though, yeah. in some ways, the story is there, if you will, but uh, always perhaps a little bit beyond us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think. Um, We think about the big story, both creation, redemption, and then the future, whatever that will look like. We're given uh, distinct things to hope in, but not a lot of detail, actually, and certainly not a lot of understanding as to how God pulls this off. And there's just tremendous mystery that's still there and always will be there in our relationship with God. Um, even the fact that we can know Him truly relationally, but never exhaustively, there's no way, you know, um, I think maybe that's, I know, I haven't really studied that passage in, in, in much detail, really, but I think that, that, that may be what, what that text is getting at. We have the eternity in our hearts, and other, we have the, the longing to connect with the transcendent, with something that's above and beyond us in this world, and we long to, we long to know God, and yet, that doesn't mean that therefore God reveals everything to, to us. As if we could even receive it <laughs> or understand it. Yeah, I don't know. No, I just was thinking of Mrs. Schaefer's book, The Tapestry. The the image that Mrs. Schaefer ha- has of, of in this life, you see the back of the tapestry, which mm-hmm. is lots of knots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but one day we'll see the the front of the tapestry, which will which will show us the story much more clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have one other unrelated, very quick mm-hmm. thought. Yeah. Given, given what you said, and just given what the scripture says about the Gentiles, I assume most people here are Gentiles. I don't know. There may be some Jewish Christians here, mm-hmm. or some Jewish not Christians here. <laughs> but it just makes it makes anti-Semitism outrageous and nonsensical. Yeah. Yes. 
that we are exactly we are grafted into yeah. Judaism. We yeah. are grafted. Jesus was a Jew. He was a rabbi. Yeah. It just makes anti-Semitism out, you know, mm. obscene yeah. for Christians. Yeah. And uh, yeah, some very, very deep, serious disconnect going on there in terms of what it is to, to be a, a Christian at all. Mm. Totally, totally totally undeservedly grafted into something that's not your story but now is <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which in a sense is what is the same case with the Jews I mean God approaches Abraham and chooses them it's not as if the, you know it's, it's, it's yeah. on some level Jews and Gentiles are on totally equal footing there um, but yeah but I think it's really, really, really valuable the more we understand the Christian faith as, be, as being, in its roots, Jewish. I think cause you just understand way more of what everything the New Testament talks about. So, you know. yeah. Is there a question back there? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, there's a, a phrase that we can often hear. Uh, I've used it myself, but in sharing the gospel, that can sound compelling. Uh, the phrase is, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Those who, yeah. who to, you know, to connect to a bigger story. Yeah. Which, on one hand, sounds like that's going to, that's, you know, very wonderful and compelling, but can also be very empty, because what does that mean? How do I find that out? Mm-hmm. So I just wondered if you could comment mm. on that phrase, and maybe what is a better way to... Share the idea of there is a bigger story mm. of your life and yeah. how to find it in Christ. Something that just kind of delivers more mm-hmm. than this idea that you don't know exactly what to do with it. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, personally, I, maybe this is because I'm a cynic, but I, I'm, I'm a little bit allergic to that phrase. Yeah. <laughs> Um, mostly because I, I sort of I sort of hear what people will hear when, if I were to say that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, um, I think it's I think in, in a very cynical world. I mean, this is maybe just particularly being from Massachusetts or something. I don't know, but but uh, um, it just sounds like you're trying to sell something. Um, have I got a good plan for you? Like, come, you know, right this way, sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, while it's very true that I think God calls people and has a plan for their life, it doesn't. And it can also be heard as, you know, this way to happiness, this 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 way to this way to the, to an easy life, a wonderful. You know, how often does a wonderful plan for your life mean like actually maybe called to a road of real suffering or sacrifice, which is actually what committing to Christ often is. And we're supposed to think of it in that way, potentially at any moment, you know. And so um, there's a way in which that that line, I think, you know, as a way of engaging people. And, and who knows? It, it doesn't mean that it's it's never a good thing to say. But but uh, I I shy shy away from it a little bit, and I, I'm much more likely to to want to just engage people in what they uh, what are their current sources of meaning insofar as they can articulate them, right? Like, what is it that's, you know, and because and so much of that, I don't know, I mean, I, 
so much of what we call evangelism, I think, requires some some uh, more foundational conversations and trust and really and, and just mm-hmm. engagement before we even get to this. Because I want to know what, how do you view the world and, and on what grounds? <laughs> what, what what does it do for you? <laughs> like we, you know. Um, so yeah. Which, which, which obviously means probably having much longer conversations and many, and many more with somebody. So, I don't have a lot of great advice for how to word the gospel to a random stranger in an elevator. You know, <laughs> like I don't know, I don't know. Um, but um, yeah, and it's, and it's not that God doesn't have a wonderful plan for our lives. Actually, that that it's it's just it's more to me. It's more what that implies and how that can be misheard because God does desire our thriving and Christ has come to give us life and and yes it is it is full of hope and joy and everything but that but what do people hear when they hear that they hear they hear like a a selling point and this is your life is going to be easy Um, Lenny did you have something? Well it just occurred to me that I think a better starting point or way we should be thinking about it and communicating that does your life have any meaning? Yeah. You know, that, that what what we're talking about is what do, what difference do our lives make? Mm-hmm. What what gives our lives meaning? Mm-hmm. And that that's doesn't have that same kind of you know yeah. <laughs> sales pitch yeah um, um, language. Mm-hmm. Because in a sense, it's quite open-ended and depends on a conversation happening. Yeah. Like you want, and yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah which me and whenever we talk about meaning, we're sort of talking about purpose. Like, what, what do you? What's the? What's the? What's the point, what's the point of you? <laughs> that's actually. A, that's what sounds like an insult. It actually, is an insult. You're not supposed to say that, but but um, but you know what I mean. What, what's the point? Yeah. Uh, your purpose. But I think that's part of it, like God has a plan, is like somebody knows, somebody sees, like somebody is big enough, even if it is terrible, like somebody's big enough for that to know it, and still do something with it. Like I think that's what it means by wonderful, is like the dark that turns into beauty, like that's Christ's story, so it's not wonder, I think our version of wonder is too small, and so... Hmm. But I think, yeah, I think there's the hope in just, like, there is something, like you said, the bigger narrative. Like, there is somebody who is in charge of it, and hmm. you're in something that is not, yeah, not just random evolutionary chaos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Remember your name again, sorry. Jacob. Jacob, that's right. I was interested in, you said you were kind of cynical. Um, so we're talking about how stories like you know build up meaning, but uh, um, a conversation Sloan and I have said is, what's the point of jokes? And mm-hmm. it seems that maybe jokes are to destroy meaning or take apart meaning. Mm-hmm. That a lot of times, uh, sin- like you know, a cynical attitude is to tell jokes to like kind of pull apart meaning, mm-hmm. yeah, deconstruct it. Yeah. Um, but I'd be interested. in I guess, yeah, what do you think jokes are for? Yeah, it depends on the joke. Um, I think I think some humor is to- is absolutely cynical and, and basically isn't, gets its, gets its kind of power or punchline or whatever out of, out of just tearing something down. Um, and that's a kind of humor that I think is totally unredemptive and, and to be avoided. 
<laughs> some humor that really really gets its power out of cruelty to somebody, right? Um, or trying trying to tear someone else down or expose them as ridiculous or whatever. So there's, but um, that's not the case with all humor at all. Uh, I think there's some humor that's not really cynical as much as it is just giving you a different perspective on something. Um, and yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's Dick has done a whole lecture on humor, so he should probably take take it from here. But uh, <laughs> but the, but I think there's there's you. Jokes and humor are potentially quite redemptive, um, but um, it just depends. It depends on what the joke is. It depends on what, what how you're getting the mileage out of a joke. You know, um, I think that there's people talk about humor as being humor is often defined as being incongruity that you suddenly get a. Pers- you suddenly see an incongruity that you didn't know was there, and 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 the the revelation of that incongruity makes you laugh, and that that, that that's 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 kind of a um, an amoral definition. I mean, that could be totally innocent <laughs> and uh, not necessarily cynical at all. But um, yeah, I don't know. Do you, do you want to come back on that, or do do you have examples of how you think? humor can tear down meaning or, or, or just a little bit more about what you mean by that? Uh, I just kind of wanted to hear what your thoughts were. Mm-hmm. Also, okay. I was thinking, what was your name again? Marguerite. Marguerite? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about what you were saying of like the idea that God having a plan like can be taken as this kind of saccharine, like almost like annoying thing sometimes. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it does give pers- the wider perspective because like without the wider perspective, the gospel... Is kind of uh, mm-hmm. God comes down, you know. After all this time, God finally comes down to His people and then gets murdered. It's mm-hmm. kind of funny, um, but like the, <laughs> incongruous, <maybe>. incongruous. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the wider perspective is what really like gives the meaning of this mm-hmm. big overarching plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and mean, you see that even in the gospel stories. I mean, like the, even Jesus' closest friends didn't understand mm-hmm. the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Until the resurrection, and they're like, "Oh, that's what was going on." <laughs> you know, yeah. So you see examples of that. Um, I think I think humor can also make fun of cynicism. To be like, "Do you realize this is the end of what you're saying? Is that what you really want?" And to, I think it can <laughs> throw light on the darkness and be like, "Hey, you don't want to think that. Like, let's laugh and realize that, that is terribly sad, and we don't want that." You know, so mm-hmm. I think there can be incongruity to the extent of cynicism, taking it to the end, and it's like, all right, let's shove it off the cliff. See, that's kind of funny. We don't want that. So. <laughs> I think humor is, is challenging by nature, but challenging doesn't necessarily mean it's cynical. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, think back to the Old Testament when God talks about a man who takes a log mm-hmm. and carves it and makes it into a shape mm-hmm. and then props it up just right so it doesn't fall over mm-hmm. and then worships it. Mm-hmm. There's... there's there's challenge and even yeah. cynicism in that whole passage mm-hmm. that God uses to make a point. It's a, it's a point of, of, of you know, there was a famous talk show host that used to say that he used to make points by by using absurdity to, you know, taking points to their absurd conclusion yeah. to, mm-hmm. to draw distinctions. Yeah. And, and so I think there's a real value to it, but I think that um, figuring out the difference between 
what's challenging and mm-hmm. what's cynical. That's, you know, humor is what you're describing is satire. I mean, that's what an example of yeah, humor, yeah, like yeah, exaggerated, yeah. you know, like to reveal some folly. In the case of the, you know, Isaiah talking about idolatry, it's like mm-hmm. just, just for a second, let's yeah. just reflect on how absurd this is mm-hmm. that you would make something and then cry out to it as if it made you. Mm-hmm. Like what? That is absurd, and we're supposed to think it's absurd. And if you laugh at it, good because that's what it is. You know. Anyway. Um, so yeah, and there's things that should be mocked, <laughs> you know, um, but I think the danger is in, 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 in cynicism becoming just a mode of operating all the time is that we turn that in every direction, and and oftentimes for people out of self-preservation and, and wanting to feel sophisticated, just basically have a mocking mm-hmm. attitude towards everything, and try and and as if we can make a flippant joke about this and just. We all know that's absurd, right? Well, no, actually, not everything is absurd, <laughs> and not everything should be mocked. So, um, yeah, yeah. Dick, I, I I love it. Chesterton is great on humor, and, and uh, he's he says if if a man's walking across the London Bridge and his hat blows off and he chases it, and if you find that funny, that proves the existence of God. <laughs> right? Yeah. What he means? <laughs> Not just leaving. <laughs> what he means is that, as Ben said, humor he defines as as sudden realization of incongruity. Not all incongruity is funny. Mm-hmm. Flying an airplane into a, into a skyscraper is not. It's very incongruous, but not funny mm-hmm. to us anyway. Mm-hmm. Since it was our skyscraper and our people. So there's all sorts of incongruity that's tragic. Right? Uh, but for some reason, there's some little twist to something that is humorous that gets under your skin and makes you laugh. And he gives an example of uh, a man's hat blowing off and he chases it uh, on the bridge, showing there's an incongruity between our, our sense. We are in control here. We know what's going on. I'm a master of my thing. I got dressed and I put the right sort of hat on. <laughs> I, accidents like this don't happen to me where I'm... I'm Great indignity is I have to run and chase something across this expensive hat. My hat, everybody laughs at me. And, and uh, if that's, if we, if we laugh at that, we're laughing at the, the great human tragedy of being made in the image of God to have dominion over the earth, and yet having lost that, and mm-hmm. not having anything like the control that we think we have. And so the, the jarring is between human pretense and the reality of fallenness and brokenness and mm-hmm. stupidness of the world, which leads you to, to God if you understand that. Mm-hmm. It ought to. You know, it, isn't <laughs> it, it leads you to, to truly understand the human condition. We are filled with preachers. That's why I, my theory is that that's why uh, in New Yorker cartoons there's certain vocations that are especially popular. To any, make fun of. Any vocation yeah, yeah. that has to do with a very ordered uh, psychiatry, yes. police, Military, well, clergy, all people who are very rigid, uh, sort of a, a big, set of expectations. Big CEOs in their all corner and, and offices. And all sorts of stuff happens yeah. if it's <laughs> jars against the, the orderliness of their profession. Yeah. Uh, that's why there's so many jokes about them in the New York. <laughs> 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 anyway, so. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Mm-hmm. Esther. Um, sort of been formulating this for a while, but it's related because I remember uh, when Dick gave a lecture about humor. Um, 
the question came up like is, is humor only possible because there's been a fall mm. because of that incongruity of our human state mm-hmm. um and I think the same question can apply to stories. Like, are stories only possible because there's been a fall? Mm-hmm. Um, in her book on reading well, Karen Small mm-hmm. basically says that. She says you couldn't have stories mm-hmm. if there's been a fall, which I really? uh, found quite uh, concerning, actually. Yeah. But um, <laughs> because, and partly because when Dick was asked that question, he said that, <laughs> wrote this down, this was very funny. Um, he said that <laughs> even before the fall, to have a cello in a marching band would be funny. Would there have been marching bands? So I just wonder if you want to like talk about that and, and that kind of I mean I was connecting to that idea of like you know what if we did use the language of story more than a wonderful plan? Mm-hmm. Um, if that would maybe give more space for the the sacrifice that's called for, or the or the suffering that is part of the fall mm-hmm. of Jesus, I mean, that's the story. His, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus' story arc is this way. It's this way. Yeah. Um, and that's what we follow mm-hmm. when we follow. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't really thought very much about the initial question about about uh, does the existence of stories sort of depend on there having been a fall? I mean, certainly our understanding of stories and, and what makes good, compelling stories now is a post-fall reality. In that, you know, uh, we live are living in a post-fall reality, and stories that are, that that don't take that into account very seriously are, are bad. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, it's like in a writing class, you're talking yeah. like you have like short stories. First sentence should have conflict. That's yeah, how you, start you have to get to some sort of tension and conflict. Yeah, yeah. But um, that—that just—that's that fallacy that mm-hmm. I run into in teaching kids that their idea of heaven and perfection is a structured garden where everything's in a row. Yeah, yeah static. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. what I love about Lewis's concept of uh, higher up and further in, mm-hmm. you know, that there's still, uh, that it will be a different kind of story. We don't, we wouldn't know how to tell it, yeah. right? Yeah. But there, but there still mm-hmm. is something happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're not just sort of stuck in this fixed position. Mm-hmm. And that's what, and that's what mm-hmm. I, I, you know, after 30 seconds of reflection, I would say, <laughs> I, I would, I, I, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea. Like, no, no, without a father, never would have been stories. I think they just would have been very different, different kinds of stories. But, but part of the, and and you know, Lewis uh, is certainly dealing with with a very biblical concept, which is that you know that the, the Hebrew understanding of goodness and creation is not the Greek understanding of static perfection. <laughs> it's it's one in which there's, um, it's good, and it's wholesome, and yet there's room for development mm-hmm. and work, and there, there's actually a place for human beings to do something in creation. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, if if creation was if what God meant by it is good in creation meant it's perfect, don't touch it, you know, like that's more of the Greek understanding of you know if something is perfect, it can't change without becoming less perfect. 
where that's not at all a Hebrew idea. Like, and, and I think that's very, very clear in the beginning of the creation narrative. God is saying, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then I'm putting Adam and Eve in here to tend it and to do something and to be fruitful and multiply. And, and so it's clearly, it's a goodness which is a dynamic goodness, uh, which, is, which is open to change and which is open to human input changing. Um, and uh, and that understanding, I think, is much. I have a much easier time understanding. Yeah, well, of course, there's going to be stories. <laughs> They're going to be doing things. Yeah. You know, um, I, now I don't know. So much of our understanding of good narratives today has to do with uh, tension and resolution, conflict, and some sort of resolution. So I don't know what a story would, a pre-fallen story would look like. Uh, but but um, well, there can be. Think about. Um, out of the silent planet, mm-hmm. you know, the, there's there's challenge when mm-hmm. they're going after that creature in the water. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's there's there's a difference between yeah. fallen. I mean, mm-hmm. I think what he's playing with mm-hmm. there is that there's there are challenges and there are things to do and accomplish, and um, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, but it's not it's not a fallen world. Yeah. And I think when I think yeah. of this tension, I'm like, I feel this tension between the finite and the infinite. And that's a fundamental re- relationship we have that gives me hope for heaven. It's like we are not God. And so we always have to wrestle with this idea of like who God is and how can we act. And so we get these activities, you know, things and challenges that we do to understand and discover God. So I think tension is inherently part of being in a relationship with a God we can't understand fully and we grow to understand. And so I think that's a narrative that's just human, and then that understanding God then looks different when we're fallen, and that becomes more challenging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, um, what was I going to say? I lost my train of thought. Yeah, take it. I, I, I think it's what you said in addition to, like, the consequence of the fall, because in, like, Receiving the or ability to discern good and evil for ourselves, this seems to be the like backbone of most good stories and jokes. Is that there's some kind of like thought or idea or a way of what is and isn't correct that people thought, and either it's validated or invalidated or some cycle of the both. Um, and I think this is why like jokes can be like tragic, or good jokes are like tragic, or somewhere in between. I really like the one of. Uh, there's, there's a farmer, and uh, a genie comes up to him and says, uh, I'll grant you a wish, but whatever I give to you, I'll give double to your neighbor. And so the farmer thinks about this really carefully. And he says, I want you to take out one of my eyes. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> I really like this joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to say destroy half of my crops or something. Yeah. <laughs> Same idea. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I did not think it was funny in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I think it's because of the fall. It's this kind of like incongruity that is like tragic. That like you know yeah. like what I want initially isn't what's good for my neighbor. Like yeah. I want them to be at a worse off position than I. Right. So what, what it is is like I can't bear to. E- even receive a benefit if someone else is given more. Yeah. I mean, that's like the... Mm-hmm. And, 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 but it's getting... It's it's an absurdity 
but it's also getting at, and the reason why it's kind of like all of us cringe and it's like because it's sort of there's some tr- there's something there's enough truth in it, <laughs> and that we can see in ourselves if we're honest. Yeah. It's like it's one of those painful jokes, yeah, to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's not, I'm not sure it's my favorite one, but thank you no, for telling no. it. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. But humor can be. I mean, I, I remember just Dick used to say when we were raising our three sons, um, <laughs> how and, and since how you know humor was just without humor, he thought at least one of us would have ended up either dead or in prison no. at some point. <laughs> that, that humor can if be... Not more. If not more. <laughs> <laughs> humor, oh. <laughs> humor to, to de- defuse um, tense situations. Mm-hmm. Humor done well in a family or an institution to enable mm-hmm. people to laugh at themselves, mm-hmm. to laugh at their absurdity. I, mean, I can remember quite a few occasions when not just the children, but I was also made to laugh at my own absurdity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that, that, that in those ways it can be, re- it can be redemptive. If, if, yeah, if, if handled very carefully, I think yeah. it, it could also be extremely irritating if you're actually really yeah. upset yeah. about something and someone tries to make you laugh at it. Yeah, yeah but it has to be done. Yeah. I think Dick was good at it. Yeah, it has, has wonderful potential. He was better at it than I was. <laughs> it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Take it the other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I sometimes try to use humor uh, with my kids to, in order to sort of lighten things up and 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 to just yeah break break up un- tensions and and uh, it's 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 about fifty fifty. <laughs> sometimes it's sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's just like not what was needed. So that's. <laughs> Yeah, humor. It's like any 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 kind of gift. It can be just misused and and, and uh, used as a def, you know, just a way to break awkward silences, or used as a way to put someone else down to feel big myself. It's, it's, there's just a million ways in which it can be misused. But I think the thing itself isn't necessarily bad. Yeah, yeah, Sloan. I think like one way that humor can get, especially like in maybe like modern or for modern um, way of looking at things, is ways that can be redemptive. Is that allows us to like break out of our egotism and just yeah. like laughing at myself and like get outside of myself and not take myself so seriously and that way that in alignment of the egotism God wants to escape from and like allowing him to all our stories so perilous and that way as well yeah can get us out of our heads in a Right, like in the beginning, or of your talk, or first half of us authoring like our own story, and um, it sort of, you know, kind of is maybe separate from right a lot of us allowing God to author our story. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering when we do allow, you know, like open ourselves up to like God being the author of our story and hearing what He has to say about what what our story is and what His plan is for us. Where does like our own agency enter into that mm-hmm. and free will? Because I have a difficult time putting this into words. Um, mm-hmm. So I was just wondering what you thought about Yeah, yeah. I was talking, in this talk I was talking more about, about sort of, um, I wasn't getting so much into this idea that if God is the the author, we are just sort of puppets on a stage or something like that. 
I was more referring to the idea that that when our story is part of God's bigger story, like we have to take seriously His interpretation of our stories. Like like He's the one that gets to tell us. Like actually, I don't call you unfortunate. I call you blessed. Like like yeah. the yeah. the C.S. Lewis story where. Um, as the interpreter of of our stories, which we we want to be the interpreter of everything, mm-hmm. and say, well, I am a I am clearly a selfless hero in my story, and everybody else is screwing up around me or something. No, we need to allow God to tell us the truth, and you know, um, I I don't I don't. In a, in a sense, yes, the, thinking of God as sort of the author of all history, and all, um, in one sense, that's absolutely true, and, and that He's sovereign and has control of his, his world and everything. But I, do, I don't, um, I don't think that that is um, to exclude human choices. Um, and this is this is again, this is similar to the incarnation as one of the central mysteries of the Christian faith. I mean, this is another one <laughs> that, that doesn't um, that doesn't go away. Uh, this idea that actually God is really, really sovereign in control, and yet um, your choices matter. And you're not... You, you're, you're, your experience of making choices in your life isn't just an illusion, as if you're just doing what God has already destined you to do or something like this. Um, <coughs> There's uh, both are somehow mysteriously true, <laughs> and there's places in the Bible that talk about that, um, or at least show that, uh, and leave you to leave you to wrestle with it. Um, that uh, and Paul in, in Philippians sort of like striving with all his might towards this goal because God is in him, willing him to do that. You know, there, there's. It's not so much a um, a picture of a scale where it's like, well, there's this much of my will and this much of God's will, and it's either one or the other kind of thing. It's much more um, that both are real. Mm. And um, the one I often talk about, uh, forgive me if I say it all the time, um, is it's, it's more of a negative example, but it's it's during the Last Supper when Judas is mm. contemplating betraying Jesus and, he's a, and Jesus tells him go and I forget the exact words but you know go and do what it's been destined for you to do this is part of God's plan essentially but woe to the one that betrays the son of man <laughs> and so this is just like a, this massive just kind of like what are you going to make of that <laughs> it doesn't Jesus doesn't attempt to resolve it at all but it's just that you, you are responsible for what you do, but this is also God's plan. Um, I, I, um, that's, I think the, the problem is, I think, we, I think Christians get into problems when they emphasize one and, and ignore the other. Um, in order, it, understandably, out of a desire to, to, to reconcile a, a, a pretty difficult tension, right? It's like, it's, Tensions are, are tensions because there's two things that seem to be conflicting with each other. If you just take one away, it's great. There's no tension. <laughs> um, but uh, but that's not really... It's hard to do that and, and remain faithful to, to what the Bible actually teaches. Um, the Bible is, is full of exhortations about 
do this and not that. You know, turn to God. Like, you have a choice. You know, it would make no sense at all if we didn't have some sort of choice to, to hear and respond, right? And that's full of, full of, uh, descriptions of God's sovereignty and He's in control and this is His story and this, you know. And so, um, I think there has to be some way of practically embracing both. That's a big tangent. I'm sorry, but, but that's, I wasn't, in this talk, I wasn't so much getting at that God as author as in God as, as sort of the puppet master. It's more God is the one that actually sees the story as it is, and and if we're going to see our own stories rightly, we need to let Him tell them to us. Kind of, um, yeah. I wonder if you I just thought of the Beatitudes mm-hmm. as like Jesus interpreting the story, like "Blessed are those who mm-hmm. mourn," "Blessed are those mm-hmm. who mourn," "Spirit," like like He's he, and He's saying. How, like the lens through which God is author mm-hmm. is going to, you know, work through the different circumstances. Mm-hmm. I wonder mm-hmm. if you'd say that that fits that kind of paradigm of of God telling us mm-hmm. the story that we're in, mm-hmm. whereas our approach would be like, I don't know, like being poor isn't really a blessing, you yeah, know, yeah. or whatever. You no, know, totally, yeah. Is. That's I think that's one example of of. Um, yeah, God, sort of God telling us what's actually important and what's actually yeah. um, of value to Him, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, which may not at all, may, depending on where we're at, might not be at all what we value. But um, actually, you know, it, this you may not look like it, but to suffer unjustly or to suffer mm-hmm. for my name is blessed. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, but. Uh, yeah, it's a good example. Just, yeah. well, well, if we're going to live this, um, we need to allow we need to to allow for that to be the case, mm. even though it doesn't might not feel like it, because um, mm. he's the one that actually sees the end of the story. Mm. <laughs> and one day, I think we will actually see the blessedness of it. This is yeah. this is one of the things that that post that I I, I am. I'd be almost more upset if someone said there won't be storytelling at the end. When we're, you know, it's like there's there's gotta be because yeah. <laughs> because yeah. uh, even though we won't be living in a fallen state anymore, and and like uh, we we're reflecting that every tear will be wiped away, mm. it's still uh, we'll have the story to tell, which is oh, which is going to be completely about God's redemption from from the brokenness of the world. And, uh, and one of the other spirituals I was, I was quoting, yeah, it's the gospel song. Uh, I don't know when it was written or by who or anything, but it's, it's um, by and by when the morning comes, uh, all the saints of God are gathered home. We'll tell the story of how we overcame, exactly. uh, and we'll understand it better by and by. So it's like, it's, it's like this um, beautiful, like, part of our worship and praise of God for all eternity will be telling the story of how he saved us. And that's incongruous, actually. I think there'll be laughter about that. Not funny now, maybe, but it's like the incongruity of having been lost and utterly, mm-hmm. utterly not worth saving, really. <laughs> and and yet here we are, <laughs> you know. That's that's an incongruity that I think it's a, it's a good it's a good joke. That's that's uh, totally uncynical. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the greatest incongruities will be that we'll be in heaven, but the greatest 
act in history will be Jesus being crucified on the cross, which is the most horrible thing possible. Mm -hmm. And yet, in heaven, we'll have the perspective to see the beauty of that, to see the wonder of that, and and not having that would be just the greatest loss ever. Mm -hmm. Somehow, when we get to heaven, we wouldn't retain the knowledge of something negative that had happened. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess I've always thought with that which, what I thought she wrote was really good because I've always wondered about that. It says that God will wipe away every tear. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say, at least initially, that there will be no tears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that it is going to be something about telling our story yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. explaining it to us and letting us see it as part of the big picture. Mm-hmm. And the wiping away of the tear is the idea that we're going to be okay with it. You're right. The wiping away the tears implies that we'll be crying before the Lord, right? right. So this is sort of a, yeah, yeah, I love that. Really awesome. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. But I mean, what you're saying about Jesus and the I mean, in a sense that you see it, a demonstration of that in the the risen Christ, that he's wounded. His wounds are there, but he's glorified. He's 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 mm. this resurrected. Um, which is, I mean, which is, I guess, a uh, all, all memory of the crucifixion isn't erased. No, yeah. like his yeah. scars are right there, but they're they're his glory. Mm. Like, so look at what he did. Yeah, yeah, a lamb yeah. Slain. yeah. So a lamb was slain at his throat cut. Yeah. So he's he's going to look like a lamb that was slain, and mm-hmm. somehow that's going to be an awesome mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Because the glory of God is his love for for us. I mean, that that's that's what the glory of God is. Is and that's the demonstration mm-hmm. of his love. Wow. And so, um, yeah. Wait, I think we should wrap up. I'm, I'm getting a little tired, but thank, thank you, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.